everyone and welcome to another Sunday online with us. We're excited that you've tuned in as we continue our journey of getting ready together. Now we've looked at what it means to be devoted to the Apostles' teaching, what it means to be devoted to the fellowship, and today we start looking at what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. But before we do that, I wanted to take one last opportunity to remind you to sign up for church in person in November. You can choose to be part of our 8 o'clock, 10.30 or 6 p.m. service by heading to the appropriate link and signing yourself and your family up. You'll then get an email during the course of the week that tells you which dates you've been invited to join us. Now, if you missed the deadline and don't sign up today and perhaps you're watching this uh, during the course of the week, you can still sign up. We will still register you. You just won't get an invitation to the first Sunday of the month, but we would still love to have you with us in person. That's it for me today. I'm going to hand over to Matt Johnson, who will be bringing God's word to you. As always, you're invited to stay on after the sermon to worship with us in song. You can also worship the Lord through giving today, or you can worship by commenting with an answered prayer or a testimony in our comment feeds. We always love to hear what God is doing in your lives. Have a great service, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to our online service again. It's good to be with you this morning. Hello, everyone. Um, it's been good to catch up with some of you face-to-face at church these last few Sundays. But for those who haven't been able to join us and continue to do so online, we trust that these services will still be of encouragement to you. So Shelley's just got a reading from Psalm 126, and then we'll open in prayer. Psalm 126, verse 2, two, two and 3. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Let us pray. Father, we're just encouraged by your word. We thank you that we're able to read it. We thank you that it's so true. We thank you that it builds us up and it restores us. So we pray this morning as we go into the service that... uh, through your word and through the worship, we'll live encouraged, knowing that we have met with you. And so we pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. Enjoy the service. to another Sunday online. Uh, we are busy going through our series called Getting Ready to Gather and can you believe it, it is part six today. And uh, I'm going to be reading uh, from hopefully by now a very familiar passage to you from Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47. And then I'm also going to read uh, from an important text, uh, Luke chapter 22 verse 14 to 23 uh, that uh, zones in on what we're going to be talking about today. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47 together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number 
day by day, those who are being saved. And if you have your Bibles, won't we just turn together to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And this is the moment where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, as we call it, or communion. So let's read from verse 14 together. This is Jesus speaking. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So we have been tackling uh, the series called Getting Ready Together. And what we're wanting to do in this series is to push the reset button in our hearts and minds as we navigate out of lockdown. And we want to do this by asking the question, why is it so important that we are devoted to Gather And as we get ready to gather, what are the things that uh, we need to be giving ourselves to in this life? This life is short and um, we need to be sure of what really matters. And so this series is to help us refocus in on as we hopefully soon, or not rather, rather than later, transition into normal life and to go, what are the things I need to give myself to? What I need to put off the table in order to put these on and uh, grow in them? And so we really do feel God calling us clearly as an eldership. And as a church, to give ourselves to the same things that this early church in Acts chapter 2, 42, gave themselves to. Remember, this Jerusalem church is a model for us in the 21st century. She was devoted to four specific things that played out in other ways. But if you had to watch this church, you had to see these early Christians and say, what were they about? What were the dominant factors of their lives? It would be these four things. And they are the apostles' teaching, the fellowship the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now remember that word devoted is important. It is to attend constantly to. They were attending constantly to these things or were diligent in or persistent in the giving of their time. And uh, we've been working our way to today's message, which I'm really excited about because it's the first time I'm preaching on this topic. But um, I want to help us find out how we got here because it all connects very tightly and coherently uh, in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Uh, on week one, we looked at why were they devoted to the apostles' teaching? And we said it is because of this radical work of the Holy Spirit in a human life that literally makes us born again. Uh, that's what enables us to be Christians, is that we receive this newness of life. And just like a little baby who's born, that, that baby's desperate for nourishment and food. And so what is making these people hungry for the apostles' teaching, devoted to it, is because they're looking for nourishment. And they're looking for milk. And that's one of the ways you know that you are a Christian, is that you are hungry for the word of God, for God to speak to you. The second week was that they came under a new authority in their lives. Because of this work of the Spirit that had given them new life, the same Spirit was propelling them to this authority 
of the word of God, which the Spirit also authored. And so they had a high reverence and submission to the word of God. In other words, when those apostles were preaching and it was in line with Scripture, man, they saw it as the word of God. And so their attitude to preaching, this apostles' teaching, was very, very high. And the third, we saw that that devotion to this apostles' teaching wasn't just hearing the word, but doing it. And so it wasn't just their attitude, but their application. And they applied this word of God to every single area of their lives. And that led us to week four, which is the second big thing that they devoted themselves to in this list of four, which was the fellowship. And in week four, we said the main reason why they devoted to the big fellowship, that was our topic in week four, these gatherings in our context, Sunday gatherings, was to hear the preaching of God's word. They were hungry. They were hungry for God. And that drew them around the pulpits of the time. But also, we said that they shared in something very important in their new natures. And so all of a sudden, these Christians... Uh, prior to them becoming born again, they wouldn't have any interest in these other people around them. But suddenly, this, this, this pe- these people became family. And uh, they suddenly felt more connected to these people than they did their own blood family. Because they shared in the same salvation, the same spirit, the same savior, the same body. And so that was the feel and draw factor to the big fellowship. They were devoted to the big fellowship in week four. In week five, we saw how Mark would unpack. They were devoted to the small fellowships as well. There were two levels of fellowship that they were devoted to, the big fellowship and the little fellowships, the temple gatherings and the gatherings in their homes. Both in our modern day and age, we want to emphasize again, there seems to be a warped understanding that you can be devoted to one or the other. No, no, they were both. And the reason for these small fellowships were obviously that they loved being together. It was a place of discipleship and talking about and applying what they'd heard through the apostles' teaching and doing life together. And this is, we start to see the picture of what we get of what a a spirit-filled, alive, loving church looks like. But today, we're going to be talking about something very, very important. And perhaps something that you've never heard from the pulpit before is that we are looking at their devotion to the breaking of bread. It's the third thing in the list of four in Acts chapter 2.42. And now when, when we talk about the breaking of bread, the devotion to the breaking of bread, it's known as other things to us in our context as communion or the Lord's Supper. Or if you come from another stream of, of, of um, Christianity or denomination, the Eucharist. It's just uh, from the Greek to say to give thanks. So when I talk about communion or the Lord's Supper, or I talk about um, uh, this breaking of bread, it's the same thing. It is these two things. It's the celebration of holding the cup and the bread and doing this in remembrance of Jesus. And today I am going to be talking about or answering the question, what is the meaning of this breaking of bread? What does this mean, the bread and the cup? And how did it come to us? What is its significance? And then, Joe, next week we'll be tackling how do we partake of it rightly from 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I want to remind you that uh, they celebrated this breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2 much more regularly than what we do as a church. It seems as you read the text that they celebrated communion um, almost every time they met together in each other's homes. Um, we're not actually sure about the larger gatherings doing it in the temple gatherings, in other words, but it um, wouldn't be a problem if they did because it's always in fellowship that you take the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper. Okay, so 
after that very important reorientation and just getting us in line with where we're at in the series, my first major point that I want to talk about today is why would the breaking of bread be in the list of Acts chapter 2, 42? Why is it there? You know, if you had to ask me what is essential for a Christian's growth, my first thing was, yes, the apostles' teaching. You need to hear the proclaimed word of God and be reading and meditating on the word of God. Uh, the fellowship, you must not neglect being in um, good fellowship with other Christians, big and small. Um, and the prayers, you have to pray as a Christian to grow, right? Ah, oh, but none of us would think of saying you need to celebrate the Lord's Supper. No one would think about being devoted to the Lord's Supper or, the, as they call it here, the breaking of bread. And I wouldn't be surprised if it wouldn't even cross your mind to think that this is an essential act to the Christian life. I mean, over lockdown, did any of you think about, hey, we, we haven't broken bread in about seven months, you know, maybe we should do that. Um, and uh, <laughs> we wouldn't really even consider it essential, but these guys did. And uh, we need to also ask ourselves the question here this morning, why is the breaking of bread in third place in Acts chapter 2, verse 42? Why is it not at the end? Or why does it come after the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, but before the prayers? Why is it in that order? Well, I want to make my case today for the importance of this remembering the Lord Jesus through this act of communion by saying, ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Christians, there is a real danger of believers falling into legalism and formal religion. I said again, the real threat to you and me who are born again believers is that we can fall into legalism and formal religion. Now, what do I mean by religion? Well, religion in essence means following a set of regulations and rules or rituals. That if done faithfully, gets you your desired outcome. In other words, it could be peace with God, perhaps answered prayer, or even salvation. It's a system of good works that, if done well, is supposed to make you good with God. A system of good works in order to make you good with God. That's what legalism and formal religion is. And uh, friends, legalism is always lurking in our hearts. There is a natural drift because of our sinful nature, because of this flesh that we're in, to drift towards legalism in our Christian faith. And where's my proof for that? Well, my proof is the very church we're looking at in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. This church that started with such an explosion in the spirit and a celebration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the time you read of this church in Acts chapter 21 verse 20, they're in bad trouble. Paul comes to give his update to James and the elders of this Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 21, verse 20. And um, when they heard, it says, of the apostles, uh, Apostle Paul's update, uh, they glorified God, James and the elders here at the Jerusalem church. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, meaning the law of Moses. What had happened in just... 19 chapters of church history in the book of Acts was this Jerusalem church of Acts chapter 2, which had been formed in the powerful preaching of Jesus Christ. The Lord did not come in any way in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's preaching, if you read it. This church was birthed by responding to faith in Jesus Christ. This very church that was delighting in Jesus and proclaiming him and making his name known across the city of Jerusalem by Acts chapter 21 had fallen into cold, hard 
legalism, the law. And that's dangerous and it's serious. You see, legalism is following a pattern of thinking. So again, legalism is following a pattern of thinking. And it goes like this, because I am doing these certain things, I'm okay. Because I am doing these certain things, for God even, I'm okay. But it doesn't necessarily have to be for Him. And if we use Acts chapter 2 verse 42 as our example today, the reason why the breaking of bread is third in the list of four is you can actually be devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. In other words, you can come to church and small group regularly and read your Bible and pray sometimes and think, I'm okay. I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing my bits. I'm doing this stuff. And therefore, I'm pretty good. I'm good with God. And friends, this sort of attitude of finding a, a, a confidence in our performance is called self-righteousness. And the root of self-righteousness is a pride in our performance. It's lethal. It is sheer poison because the drift is moving from a person, Jesus Christ, sufficient for salvation and responding in terms of my whole life to this amazing person of Jesus Christ to performance means you no longer need Jesus. Means that you start to fall into a real trouble. And this is what I want to argue this morning from the Word of God is the Christian faith is not a religion. I'll say it again. The Christian faith, my friend, is not a religion. It is a response. That is the essence of Christianity. It is not a system of regulations and works. It is a response to a person and what he has done for us and who he is. And friends, his name is Jesus Christ. You see, what happened to this church in Jerusalem which doesn't exist anymore, by the way. It, it, it was wiped off the face of planet Earth, which is what happens when you fall into legalism. There's no life. It's dead. Is the terrible thing about religion and legalism is that you can do it with a cold heart. Religion and, uh, and formal kind of legalism is clinical and mechanical. It has nothing to do with the state of the heart. And Jesus summarized this so well in quoting Isaiah 29 verse 13. And he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. And they, who, they were the class act of self-righteousness in the Bible. He says in Mark chapter 7 verse 6 to 7. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. That's formal religion. That's legalism. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You know what the scary thing is? Is that what was happening in these hearts of the scribes and Pharisees can happen in your heart and mind as born-again believers. Is that we can get to a place by simply doing all this stuff that we no longer have a love or need for Jesus. In fact, these Pharisees and scribes crucified the Son of God. That was their extent to think they really needed Jesus to help them um, find salvation in God. They didn't even think He was necessary or central. And this is the problem. This is the problem, my fellow believers. It's like the Pharisees. We can love our traditions and our systems more than we love Christ. That's the danger. That's the danger. That's the threat. Of what we have to face as believers. 
And we are to recognize this terrible propensity towards legalism in our own hearts. Foolish is the man or woman who thinks that they will not naturally drift from making Christianity a response, a love response to this person, Jesus Christ, and transforming it into a cold, hard, formal religion. Can I share with you the great secret of the Christian life today? It is to keep your heart warm to Jesus. If there is one thing that you walk away with today, it is this. The secret of the Christian life is to keep a warm heart to Jesus. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 in the NIV puts it so well. It says, above all else, friends, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And we can start to become a people who worship with their lips, but their hearts far from God. And that is this beautiful purpose of their devotion to the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You see, you and I need constant rescuing from the drift towards legalism and its creep in our lives. And this is where this constant celebration of the Lord's Supper comes in. We do it in remembrance of Jesus. In other words, it helps keep our hearts and lives tethered to Him. It helps us fall in love with Jesus over and over again. And that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper, this breaking of bread. Now, with the time that we have left this morning, I want to go to point two. And I'm going to do my best by the grace of God to try and unpack the magnitude or the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 14 to 23 this morning. You see, Jesus gave two ordinances. And if you want to know what the word ordinance means, it means an authoritative order, an instruction in his life on earth. He gave two. And the first was believer's baptism. And we get that from Matthew 28, verse 19. It says, go and make disciples of all nations. So you have to say, I follow Jesus first, then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we believe in conversion, uh, first baptism, seconds. Um, and then communion is the second from Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He said, do this as often as you do that, do this in remembrance of me. And the reason for Jesus giving this ordinance of communion is uh, the reason for this doing communion over and over and over and over again is because at the center of the center of the center of the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the epicenter of all that we believe and what we hope in as God's people. And that is why when you look at churches across the city, you see the cross everywhere, not so. And uh, when I'm going to be preaching at Sterling, or I'm probably preaching right now if you're watching this during the normal online service, the, the cross is right behind me because it is the focal point of the church. And so in order to try and start understanding the significance of this bread and this cup that we call the elements, there can be wine or grape juice, is we have to understand how did Jesus introduce this? What was the context of that night when he said, I'm commanding you to do this in remembrance of me. 
And what I want to do is I want to paint a big picture of what these elements symbolize and then zoom in on them on what the significance is or when we hold them in our hands and partake of them. And we decided we're going to delay partaking of them till next week because Joe is preaching on what is the right response to these elements. I'm going to talk about what they mean in and of themselves, what they represent and symbolize. So, friends, the amazing thing about the night of when Jesus institutes the supper is it is the night of celebrating the Passover meal. It's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which I'll explain in a moment. And it's celebrated in Jerusalem, and it's coming through here in Luke chapter 22, verse 15. Its timing is impeccable and extremely significant. It's being instituted on the night of Passover. And what that means is they are commemorating as a nation of Israel something massive in the salvation history of God. We get the biggest clue of what Jesus is talking about here in it being Passover night in Israel. And uh, we're going to see how there is a connection between the Passover in Egypt that happened a thousand or so years before to this amazing evening where Jesus talks about the bread and the cup that has to be taken in remembrance of him. There's a connection and we're going to work our way to forming that connection today. And so I want to start right at the beginning because I want us to have a really awesome view of when we hold this cup and this bread of the weight of significance, what it means in terms of God keeping his promise, his salvation promise for thousands and thousands of years. To get to the point of us being able to hold this bread and this cup, God had to do some massive things in order to make it possible. And it started all the way back in that horrific fall of the human race in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fell for the tempting of the serpent, which is Satan, and their eating of the forbidden fruit was devastating. I'm also going to try and unpack a bit of that this morning, how devastating the fall of humankind was. And remember, you might be upset that Adam fell on your behalf and you fell in Adam. But just remember, Adam was the best of the best that the human race could produce. He was directly from God. You could not have done better. And if you don't like that, the second argument is this, is that your life confirms that you're no better than Adam. Everybody watching and listening today knows that they're sinful. They fall short of the glory of God. So your behavior confirms the truth that you have fallen in Adam and that we have fallen into sin. And so, friends, what, it ha- what, what happened in that moment, there was a tearing, there was a severing, there was an awful ripping of Adam and Eve's relationship with God. And they were cast out of his kingdom, cast out of his garden, cast out of his relationship with him. Things were utterly devastating for them in terms of their, their new position, which once was with God, now it is without God. And it led to their lockdown in sin and staying in the kingdom of darkness. Then God, which is how God works, takes initiative and says, I have to move towards these guys because they can't save themselves. And so what he does is he gives a remarkable promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to, to uh, talking to the serpent, actually. He says, I'll put enmity between you, excuse me, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, there's going to be an offspring, one guy that's going to come from, uh, from Eve that's going to be in enmity. And... He shall bruise your head, Satan. In other words, this guy's going to give Satan a headshot. Ah, but in that process, he's going to suffer. Satan's going to bite his heel. He's going to have his heel bruised as he tramples on the serpent. And so there's this first promise of this salvation that's going to take place. 
And then what God does in Genesis 3 is he clothes or covers Adam and Eve with animal skin. And so something has to die in order to clothe the shame, the nakedness and sinfulness of Adam and Eve. And that's the start of how God starts to show he's going to keep his Genesis 3.15 promise. Is that something's going to have to die in order to cover our sin and shame. Then we move to Noah and the flood in Genesis chapter 8. We see that God pours out a flood because of judgment upon sin. And again, at the end, when Noah's ark settles on the ground, Noah offers a, a substitutionary sacrifice, something having to be a, the substitute to stand in the gap for you and me in order for God to be pleased by uh, yeah, substitutionary sacrifice. Then comes Abraham. It zones in further in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. And God gives a promise to Abraham. He says, hey, Abraham, out of you, from your line, from your descendants, Every family and every nation will be blessed. And Abraham believed the promise of God. And his faith made him right before God in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. And then the descendants of Abraham grew. Went from little Isaac and became to Jacob. And then Jacob had uh, sons. And then these sons grew and had their family. And that, that this growing little nation of, of descendants of Abraham is called Israel. And there's this massive famine in the land of Canaan. And they have to move to Egypt. And eventually they grow into a great nation. And then the Egyptians start to fear them because the Israelites are becoming so numerous in number that they are beginning to fear that they're going to overthrow the political situation in Egypt. And so what they do is the Egyptians decide to enslave the Israelites and put them under hard labor. And that's where we get the story of Exodus. And Moses is raised up as God's appointed saviour and deliverer of God's people from slavery. And with many signs and wonders, God strikes Egypt. Ah, but the best sign and wonder, the best plague was the tenth plague when God sent his angel to uh, pass over Egypt and to kill all of her firstborn. And it was judgment upon Pharaoh's refusal to let God's people go. And it is this night, the night of the Passover, that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating. And it was when Israel had to slaughter and eat a male lamb, one year old, uh, without spot or blemish. And they had to paint his blood, its blood, on the doorposts and lintels of their homes. And then shelter under that blood. And when the angel of death passed over and saw the blood, he passed over them and they were saved. They were delivered by hiding under the blood of the Passover lamb. They were saved by putting their faith in the blood of the Passover lamb. And the second that that angel passed uh, over them, they had to leave Egypt immediately. And remember, this, the, the description of Passover is that they had to have their staff and their, 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 their traveling clothes on. They had to bake bread quickly. That's why it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because yeast you have to give time to rise. And, but that's why you couldn't bake bread with yeast, because you had to move so quickly. It was unleavened. And it had bitter herbs in which means um, it was going to be a form of suffering when you eat it. It wasn't going to be an easy journey, but um, you got to taste suffering that enabled uh, you to enjoy the fullness of the sacrifice. And uh, then they left, and on the way they went. And then Israel was commanded by God to celebrate this Passover meal every year in the first month of the year. And that's why Jesus and his disciples are obeying uh, this command. And uh, we see further then, as they're traveling through the wilderness, they get to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where they receive the law of Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments, and there were a whole bunch more. And uh, again, the symbol of sacrifice 
which was represented right from the beginning in Genesis 3, reiterated in the Passover lamb dying so that um, Israel could go free, is institutionalized. And sacrifice becomes the symbol of the way God is going to forgive sin. And then Moses also says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he says this, he predicted that one day a prophet like himself was going to come. And as we see the years draw closer to the, this coming of this predicted Messiah, we see these prophecies start to intensify. We see Isaiah predicting that it's going to be via a virgin birth and that this child is going to be exceptional. It says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9 verse 6. And that means he'll be divine, but oh, not only divine, but Isaiah says he's going to be a suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He will not only be divine, but he'll be human, as Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us. And so like the Passover lamb, celebrated every year, this Messiah was going to suffer and bear our transgressions in our place. Can you see this huge thread that's forming? So by the time the New Testament opens up, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus enter into his public ministry, sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very first thing that Jesus Christ is identified with is the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God, the promised offspring of Eve in Genesis 3.15 has arrived. The promised descendant of Abraham has arrived. Jesus' promised Messiah has come, but he's identified as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. All of the Old Testament that it pointed to has arrived in Jesus. And Jesus is proclaimed as the Passover lamb at the start of his ministry and as he nears the end of his earthly ministry, he himself is portraying himself as the Passover lamb. Have you ever thought about that? From the start all the way to the night where he goes before the cross, the end of his earthly ministry. He's identifying himself as the Passover lamb. And in essence, what you see here on this night when Jesus institutes the Passover is that he hijacks the meal. Normally, the Passover had a very set traditional way you did it. But Jesus suddenly takes center stage and he, he takes this bread and he takes this cup and he says, this is my body. This is my blood shed for you. And in his essence, what Jesus is saying, is he's saying, as you're remembering the lamb's blood that was shed for Israel years ago in Egypt, well, I'm your promised lamb that's come now. That was symbolic of who I am now. And this cup that is poured out for you, it is my blood. The blood that they sheltered under in, in Egypt of the Passover lamb. Oh, I'm doing the same thing I'm doing, except I'm doing it much better. I am God's ultimate promise. And so he's emphasizing in his body when he says, this is my body, when he's holding the bread. He's saying, ah, my body is standing in the place of your body. I am your substitute. Uh, and when he says, ah, I'm going to spill my blood for you, is that I'm going to bear the punishment of your sin, which is death. That's the huge significance, historically and in the moment, of what Jesus is doing on the night of Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper. And what Jesus does, 
with this bread and this cup is he uses it as a visual sermon. That's my third point today. How do we relate to this bread and this cup? Well, this bread and this cup preach to us. These elements preach to us. They are a visual sermon of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out to you how this works today from this text of Luke 22. He's he's using this bread and this cup to preach to his disciples. He's saying the same problem with Israel, we are remembering back in Egypt tonight as we're celebrating this Passover meal, is your problem. You are slaves like they were slaves. You are trapped like they were trapped under the power and dominion of darkness like they were. And in your own strength, disciples, and whoever's listening today, making it 21st century relevance, in your own strength, listener or watcher, you can't get out. You're a slave to something. Ah, and this is what the bread and the cup preach, is that we are in desperate trouble as humanity. Because of our sins, we are slaves. We are trapped, just like they were in ancient Egypt. And as we hold the bread in the cup, we remember what sin means. It means that we are guilty before God because of our sin. And friends, God will never excuse sin. I don't care how you want to view him. There's one thing that you must know about him is he takes sin seriously. Otherwise, he would not have crucified his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Doesn't matter how else we, we tend to categorize sin. There is no category of sin. One sin means you've fallen from the standard of God who is sinless. And there is eternal guilt. And that makes us children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, We were, because of our transgressions, children of wrath. God hates us, even though He loves the world, because we're His creation, we're designing His image, but He hates us because He also he hates our sin. John Calvin said, God loves us in that we're His creation, but He also hates us because we sin against Him. There's this enmity between us and God. And that means there's this complete breakdown in your relationship with God. The most foolish 21st century lie is that, oh, we can all have access to God and that actually we've got some form of connection with Him. We just call Him the universe. We use different terms. I want to say to you today, friends listening in today, your relationship with God outside of Jesus Christ does not exist. You are not on speaking terms. God is angry against your sin and you are angry because in actual fact you don't want to do what God wants. It's called rebellion. There's enmity and it's double and the, the effect of this sin is pollution our sin there is nothing nice and, and candy floss about it friends sin corrupts defiles and pollutes our minds our mouths our hearts our bodies and this act of sin has provoked the enmity of God towards us and he's saying Jesus in essence linking this meal to Passover saying don't think that you're any different to those Egypt those, those, those Israelites stuck in Egypt they were slaves and you are slaves too and you need rescuing just like they did and that's why I am your Passover lamb is because I have to do something in order to rescue you from a desperate situation like they did the, the problems are too big for you to face. You cannot deliver yourself. What I am doing by associating myself as a Passover lamb is saying, you need rescue. And Jesus is preaching to them through these elements as he's holding them. He's saying, I'm standing in the gap for you. This is my body in place of your body. I'm bearing this all for you in my body. This is my body given to you. My blood spilled for you. I'm even shedding my life so that I can bear the consequences of your sin. This is not some little nice thing of poor Jesus hanging on the cross. Oh, I wish you'd get down. It's about time now. It's been 2,000 years. We've always seen you know, these paintings. And I want to say to you today, my friends, what God had to deal through Jesus Christ 
on the cross was massive. It was monumental. None of us could cope with it. None of us could bear that sort of burden and bring ourselves through it. We couldn't rescue ourselves. And the fact that Jesus Christ is crucified on Passover is the greatest preaching that could ever have happened to Israel and the world. Jesus' timing on his death was impeccable. Those, those Pharisees and scribes, they were trying so hard to stop Jesus from being crucified on Passover. They couldn't get it right because the sovereignty of God was preaching through this bread and this cup and through the very act of Christ being crucified on Passover saying, this is the sacrifice that you are to hide under in order to escape judgment. And Jesus is using these elements to preach to them. And was saying, if you will do what Israel did in that night in Egypt, they had to put their faith in one thing. It was the only thing that separated them from the Egyptians. If they had not done just one act of simple faith in the blood of the Passover lamb, they would have been just like the Egyptians. There was nothing in and of themselves that was special. There was nothing in and of themselves that made them any different to the Egyptians. There was only one thing they were willing to do. And that was to say, this blood is my only hope. And friends, today I want to say to you, this is the call of the Passover meal. When Jesus holds the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. There's only one response. There's only one response that the world can have. There's only one response that you can have is to say, are you going to hide under his sacrificial love for you? His blood spilt for you? Are you going to make that your only hope? Because if you don't, oh, you're in trouble, my friend. You're no different to the Egyptians like on that night. You're part of this world. You're in the kingdom of this world. And you're under judgment because of sin. You see, we must be so careful not to minimize this word salvation. Salvation means rescue. Salvation means rescue from judgment. The angel of death is going to pass over your life one day, my friend, just like it passed over Egypt. And if you are not sheltering under the blood, it will take your life. Your eternal separation from God will be sealed. And there's only a limited amount of time. And the right response is to respond to these elements today, to say, they are preaching Christ to me. And the response is this, I have to do what those Israelites did in Egypt on that night. I have to put my, my, my total faith in the blood of the Passover. I have to hide, I have to lay hold of it as I hold this cup and as I hold this bread. I'm realizing this is my only hope. By faith, I'm clinging to it and saying, Christ, you have to be enough for me, and I believe it. You see, the glory of what this cup and this bread represents is the deliverance of Christ, our Savior. And he has delivered us from the greatest weight and condemnation that we could possibly imagine. My friends, the blood of Christ, when he bore our sins on the cross, and as we hide under it in that second, what the blood of Christ does for us is <laughs> it washes away the, the inestimable guilt that we have against God. It's called expiation. This blood washes away the wrath of God. We have peace. It's called propitiation. This blood of Jesus removes the enmity of God towards us. It's called reconciliation. This blood of Christ removes the unrighteousness of sin. It's called justification. We get a positive righteousness. This blood of Christ removes the pollution of our sin. It's called sanctification. This blood of Christ removes the dominion of our sin. It's called transfer. We're now in the kingdom of God's dear son. And as we run to the blood of Jesus, it washes us from the slavery of sin. It's called redemption. This is what these elements proclaim. This is the glory of God. This is the joy of being sheltered and covered by the blood of Jesus. And the greatest joy in the moment when Christ is on the cross, 
that temple curtain is torn. That simple little veil which represented how, how, how we could not access the glory of God. In, in that moment, it's torn from top to bottom. God is saying, come through Christ to me, world. I'm open to you. The body and blood of Christ has made a way for you. And as you hold this bread and as you hold this, this cup, it is preaching. It is preaching salvation. It is preaching reconciliation. It's saying, come, come to me. You all come through Christ. There is a new covenant. There is a new way of relating to me. Oh, it's not the old covenant of works. and all. No, no, no. No, you come to me by sheltering under the blood. All are welcome who will come through Christ. And participating in the communion meal is to say, I am partaking of his death. I am laying hold of his body. This is symbol. When I hold it, the cup, and I hold the bread, I'm saying I'm holding to Jesus in faith. I'm laying hold of the promise that if I have hidden under the blood of Christ, I'm saved. And so today I want to wrap up and say this. My fourth point is the forgetfulness of our soul. You see, friends, we are so prone to forget what Christ has done for us. Not so. We start to get smug. We sort of think, oh, look how, look how well we're doing. But when we hold these elements, we realize afresh we have not earned any of what we enjoy in the kingdom of God. We are responding simply to the goodness of God every moment of our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not religion. It's not formal, cold legalism. It is a response. It's a response to what God has done for us in Christ. It is to say, all that I have, I enjoy because of Jesus. I love him. I live for him. He has given me his whole life. I respond by giving him my whole life. That's the right response. That's the warmness of heart I'm talking about. That's falling in love with Jesus over and over again as we hold the bread and the cup. That's symbolizing. There's no magic in these elements. There's no divine spiritual infusion. They are preaching to us. And they are preaching to us the glory, awesome wonder of Jesus. You see, our great sin is to make this faith all about us. Not so. That's the heresy of today, the self-esteem gospel. The violence done to the glory of Christ by making the salvation all about me. Friends, it is not. What this Lord's Supper does is it makes it all about Him. This is the power of communion. It keeps our faith all about Jesus. And I'll tell you how wonderful it is to do this regularly. It preaches to us. When we doubt God's goodness in times of trial and what a trial has been for some of us, we hold the bread in the cup and it preaches Christ to us and it reminds us how can we doubt the love of God when he has given us such evidence of crucifying his own son? You know, we, we are sweet. It, it preaches against entitlement. Friends, when, have any of you given up your children for someone else? Any of you seen your son crucified to rescue someone else? Friend, what more evidence do you need in a time of suffering and trial that God loves you than his son? Or how about this? When we feel so guilty over sin, 
When we hold the bread in the cup and they preach Christ to us, we remember Jesus, we remember He's died. Remember that His blood is sufficient for the forgiveness of sin, that God has declared me not guilty by the blood of Jesus. When we feel far from God, we hold the bread in the cup and we let it preach to us. We let, it, we let Christ be preached to our hearts. And what happens is we remember we've been bought by this blood. We're not orphans. We belong to the Father. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. No matter how far I feel in my experience from God, it's not the reality. It's not the truth. I'm going to be with God forever. And I'm expected there. And when we are struggling to forgive another person, I'm just using some examples. We hold the bread in the cup and our hearts are melted by seeing the magnitude of how much of our sin has been forgiven in Christ. Anyone bitter today? Anyone holding a grudge? Friends, these elements preach Christ to us and they remind us the magnitude of our day of love to this remarkable Saviour. We do this in remembrance of Jesus, friends. These elements preach to us. They warm our hearts to come back from our first point, to my first point. They make us fall in love with Jesus over and over again. And this is why the early church in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 to 47 did it so often. Because it helped their hearts delight in the Son of God and it kept them rejoicing in Him. This is the meaning of the Lord's Supper to us. And I'm going to just remind you, my fifth point and last point today is that these elements preach that Christ is coming back again. You see, what communion does is it doesn't just tell us what God has done. It tells us what we are being ready for. You see, it's not about religion. It's not about cold, formal religion. It's about being prepared to meet a person. We are going to see Jesus Christ. We are his bride as the church. There's going to come a day when we're going to see this person face to face. We're not being prepared for a critique. We're being prepared for a person. Oh, and and Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 18, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He is coming again. What the Lord's Supper does is he magnifies Christ. That not only has he come, but we're going to see him again he's coming again and this world is passing away what is how are we living how are we thinking about this world if the world gets too big the Lord's Supper shrinks it in the light of Christ it is the most glorious wonderful gift to the church to keep us in line with Christ what is your life in view of his coming today a life spent in him is a life eternally well spent these elements preach to us so let's pray today. What is the Lord's Supper saying to you? What is this breaking of bread, this communion? What is it preaching to you today? Is anybody watching and knows they're not a Christian, they're not a believer, they haven't run to shelter under the blood of Christ? They thought that they were good enough through their works, they were trying to be good enough through their works. If that's you, my friend, you need to run to the blood. You say to Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe your blood is sufficient for the forgiveness of my sin. Forgive me, Lord. I want to be yours. I want to hide under you. I put all my faith in you. You're the only one that can deliver me from my sin. I choose you. I believe in you. Help me live for you. That's what you say to Jesus. For the believer today, friends, how warm is your heart to Christ? How warm is your heart to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you delight in Him? Do you see Him as the one that you're responding to every second of the day? You belong to Him. You set apart for Him and you're going to meet Him one day. How is your heart towards the Son of God? Oh Jesus, these are such wonderful things. Might the richness of the Lord's Supper permeate and perfuse into every area of our lives and as a church we pray in Jesus' name.